Hello everyone, and welcome to NOG, a history podcast, where we discuss underrepresented topics in history. If you're a fan of all things history, and would like to learn with me, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, and hit that little bell to enable notifications. This will tell you when I publish bonus episodes outside of our set bi-weekly schedule. Onward to today's content. I just wanted to quickly recognize that despite me trying to teach myself, trying to go on these pronunciation websites, but I'm more than aware of the fact that I've definitely butchered several of the names in this episode. So I apologize in advance, and if you have any notes on pronunciations, definitely let me know in the comments. Thank you for your patience. Episode 3, Zhang He and his treasure fleet. Zhang Ha is fondly known in China for his massive expeditions throughout the Indian Ocean in the 15th century, with treasure ships so large and a fleet so massive that several times over the course of history has the question been asked, how much is fact versus fiction? The answer is up to you. Let's start at the beginning. Originally born Ma He into a Muslim family, certainly not unusual by this time. His first encounter with Ming Dynasty forces was in 1382. Armed forces of the early Ming Dynasty had invaded the inland territory of Yunnan. At the time, this was a Mongol stronghold, a longtime enemy of China. It was common practice for young sons of prisoners to be castrated. Those who did were sent to the capital to serve as eunuchs. Now, in our protagonist's case, the story was famously told about how he was captured involving a General Fu Yud. In late 1831, probably somewhere in the fall months, General Yud was ordered to march on Yunnan. At the time, Yunnan was a lingering outpost of Mongol power. 300,000 troops strong, General Fu Yude attacked Yunnan to strike a blow to the Mongols. The Ming army racked up an estimated death count of 60,000 casualties. Now here's the fabled capture story of our eventual naval hero, Zheng He, then Ma He. He was stopped along the road by General Fu Yude and his men. When asked where the Mongol impersonator to the Chinese throne was, the boy supposedly replied, he jumped in the lake. Legend has it that General Yude saw cleverness and bravery in this boy and had him taken as prisoner. Three years later, in 1385, he was castrated and put in the house of the 25-year-old Prince of Yan, the fourth son of the emperor. Now, was this origin story accurate? Was he really a witty child who had a fateful run-in with someone as important as the general of a 300,000-person strong army? No one can say for sure, especially considering Zheng He never wrote an autobiography. That particular capture story was relayed through unpublished Zheng He family records obtained from 19th generation descendants of Zheng He's adopted nephew. Can you see the problem here? Can 19 generations of past storytelling and oral tradition be taken as gospel? It certainly can be correct. It's just a matter of understanding that this is quite a long time to have passed. There are some clouds of uncertainty over the origin of Zheng He and even over if he officially was even a eunuch. You see, details surrounding his life and even his official expeditions have been lost over time. Some factors were done intentionally, while others simply are the cost of time and the details being preserved through the oral tradition. But more on that later. However he was captured, it's said that after 20 years of service, 
both in court and on campaign, that Ma would receive the name Zheng He. This was an especially large honor, as this new moniker contained the imperial name from the Prince of Yan, the current emperor of China at the time. It was under the command of this emperor that Zheng He would undergo six of his seven grand expeditions. Many of these anecdotes were obtained through oral traditions and interviews. Louisa Levates underwent a monumentous journey in the 90s to follow in Zheng He's footsteps and to nail down as many details and unpublished accounts of his expeditions and exploring voyages in order to bring together as much previously lost information as possible. Her final work is called When China Ruled the Seas with the Treasure Fleet of the Dragon Throne, 1405 to 1433. This is an excellently detailed work, but I certainly hope that more information has been collected archaeologically and historically between now and the future to shed some more light, more concrete, solid proof on more of his life. Her work was phenomenal. It was an unimaginably large project, seeing as she traveled herself to East Africa, Malaysia, and China. Indian Ocean trade, upon entering into the 15th century, where we see Zheng He undertaking his seven legendary expeditions, is dominated by Muslim merchants and involves ports up through the west coast of Africa, through the Middle East, India, Indonesia, and China. There was much wealth being made in the region, and most notably, by the time Zheng He began to sail the waters, everything had already more or less been charted. So what does this mean? Why is Zheng He credited with being such a miraculous explorer if his routes were in already charted waters? Well, my friends, the answer lies in how impressively massive Zheng's expeditions were. He rose from humble beginnings to become one of the greatest admirals in Chinese history. For you see, between 1405 and 1433, he led seven grand voyages to the far reaches of the Indian Ocean. And trust me guys, the Indian Ocean is much larger than you first might think. And what made up these grand voyages were hundreds of smaller ships, and I use that term loosely, with a combined crew of several thousand hands, all led by a couple dozen absolute monstrosities of ships. I'm talking so big that engineers in more recent centuries have disputed the possibility purely on engineering physics. These treasure ships were said to be as large as 400 feet long, up to four decks tall, and consisting of seven or more masts. For those of you that aren't naval experts, like myself, as a size comparison, the Santa Maria, the largest of the three ships, notably in Christopher Columbus's expedition, was a measly 36 meters, roughly 118 feet long, with three small masts. Now imagine a ship at least three times that size, now imagine not one, but over 20 of them, and follow those massive floating cities with hundreds of marginally smaller ships. Now, you can begin to understand how the rulers, princes, and envoys along the Indian Ocean might have felt when greeted by such an assembly. If these foreign powers felt anything short of awe-inspired, then Zhang had failed his mission, because these expeditions had trade deals in mind. China, you see, had no real need for foreign goods, on the contrary. They had everything that they needed. What they did need, however, was to fuel foreign reverence, respect, and demand for Chinese trade goods. China was a superior force economically and in manufacturing goods, and the rest of the world knew it. 
All China had to do was remind them and invite them to grovel in front of their emperor for the chance to trade with them. As demeaning as it may sound, princes and envoys were crawling over each other at the chance of setting sail with Zhang He back to the emperor to perform the kowtow ritual of deference and submission. The rest of the world at this time was dumping their resources into naval exploration and last-ditch efforts to collect as many converts, let's call it what it was, manpower, and resources to fight in the Holy War. You guessed it. The name of the game in 15th century naval exploration was to beat everyone else in how their patron or their patron's country performed in the Crusades. Christopher Columbus and his entire outfit was fueled and funded with the hopes of finding riches and converts for the gain of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella and their special interests. The third great seafaring explorer of the time was Vasco da Gama, representing Portuguese interests. I could spend quite a deal of time getting sidetracked, diving into the devastation and aftermath of these two knuckleheads, but I think I'll stay on task just enough to say that their voyages and motives were very different than Zhang He's. While they had conquest and money grabbing on the mind, Zhang He was handing out exclusive invitations to come to China and join the exclusive club of trade partners. Zhang He had no need or drive to discover and conquer new lands. That wasn't part of his mission. Was China at the time engaging in their own landlocked campaign against their enemies? And will they in the future share aggressions? Of course. But in comparison to the power-hungry grabs that the powers in Europe were making in the name of their holy wars, China seemed quite tame and conservative in their needs when conducting their naval operations in the 15th century under Zhang He's careful planning and diplomating. To this day in China, July 11th is known as China National Maritime Day. On July 11th, 2005, China celebrated the 600th anniversary of Zhang He's first voyage of his eventual seven voyages, showing China's superiority to the rest of the world. A vessel made headlines in 1848 for making the trip from China all the way up to London. It's actually quite telling that China truly had no need to venture out of the Indian Ocean, despite having superior naval technology. They didn't even bother to send their first ship to London until over 400 years later than Zhang He's expeditions. But if you know China's naval history and how they essentially dominated the world in naval technology, the London display comes across as comical and almost feels like they humored someone by making the journey. Why is Zhang He's history and legacy so darn hard to research and get any meaningful and concrete details on? Well, we have the Chinese government of 500 years ago to thank for that. By the early 1500s, all of the treasure fleet had been destroyed, burned, or sunk by the government. It's easy for the rest of the world to not even realize how technologically advanced China was by the 1400s. Experts say that they weren't far from being able to circumnavigate the globe, a feat that would be performed by Europeans a hundred years after these events. However, what China tragically enters at this point is a crippling period of isolation. How does this make Zhang He hard to research? Well, it didn't help that China took their isolation one step further by burning all official records of the treasure fleet, calling it deceitful exaggerations of bizarre things far removed from the testimony of people's eyes and ears. So here we are today, left with the testimonies passed down through generations kept alive in the oral tradition, and we're slowly piecing it all together with the help of archaeology, 
and great programs like the Zhang He Research Institute in Nanjing. It's absolutely captivating to wonder if China was capable of such mind-boggling feats as the massive treasure ships in the 1400s that ferried faraway princes and zebras and giraffes across the Indian Ocean, then what could they have been capable of today if they hadn't lost so much time and technology to their period of complete isolation that stunted their aggressively upward trajectory of technological advancement? Thank you for listening to Zhang He and his treasure fleet. What did you like about today's episode? What would you like to learn more about? Go ahead and ask these questions in the comments below, and don't forget to like and subscribe. In two weeks, I have a new episode coming out with Nog, History Podcast. So don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this video with someone who you think would like it. I invite you to join Nog, a history podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. Those links are in the description below. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.